0: Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today, we are live with another Investors Roundtable. Today, diving into commercial real estate investing in 2024. What are we seeing? What's it going to be like out there in the market? It's a very interesting time. I've got this report uh, that I looked at this morning that I wanted to kind of start off our conversation with. Treasury yields are down. It's actually the lowest uh, settle since September, according to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, The Federal Reserve decided for the second time in a row to keep interest rates unchanged. The stock market is up, labor market is strong, CMBS debt delinquencies are pretty much at the same. Economic indicators say that, I mean, if you're you're basing everything off of that, that we're probably starting to level off. Maybe we're headed into a positive direction, but it's interesting being on the front lines because I am not feeling that whatsoever, and I wanted to see what these guys are feeling too. Uh, As always, we're joined by Brian Adams, Logan Freeman, and Dave Codre for this episode of the Investors Roundtable. Brian, I want to kick it over to you first. What do you, you know, before we kind of dive into what we're going to be doing in 24, what are you feeling out there right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, before we went live, we were kind of talking about this. It's, uh, It's pretty grim out there amongst operators and fundless sponsors like myself and a lot of the GPs I know. I'll give you kind of some anecdotal data points maybe. Amongst, we have about, call it 25 kind of active properties in the portfolio. A number of investors obviously have exposure across those assets. Pretty much anyone that has more than three plus positions is asking us for a portfolio review. And we're probably doing two or three of those a week. And the sentiment amongst the investors that I meet with, let's call it kind of a ultra high net worth individual or family office where I'm a small portion of their overall alternative portfolio, I'm going in there and saying, hey, probably 25% of our portfolio is impaired in some way, either pausing distributions or having some kind of issue involving, could be anything CapEx, operating expenses, et cetera, refinancing risk. And most of the LPs are saying thank you to me because when they're speaking to their other fund managers and their other GPs, private equity, venture capital, etc. their impairment ratio is probably 50% to 70%. So it's not necessarily your specific exposure. If you're a GP or a sponsor, you have to understand that the overall LP world, if you're a high net worth individual or family, it feels, it feels pretty tough out there because their overall exposure is tremendously impaired right now. If that makes sense,
0: yeah. I mean, it, it pays to be honest with your investors. I, I've always seen that. I know it's really difficult to do. So so kudos to you for for being straightforward with them. Twenty five percent is is pretty good uh, considering where everybody else is right now. I know that twenty five percent from the people that I've talked to is is a very low number. Um, mm-hmm. So I mean that that just points back to you know how conservative you guys are and what y'all do as operators. Um, Can you explain for those in the audience that may not know what a portfolio review is, what that actually means? Sure. So if we have 25 assets total within our portfolio, if an
1: investor is invested into 10 of those properties, we will do a sit down or a Zoom call with them. I'll bring in my asset management team. I'll bring in my finance team. And I'll bring in usually my VP of acquisitions as well, because they're going to want market commentary. We'll give them our global macro view of the world, like what we're seeing in real estate, what we're seeing kind of big trend wise. And then we'll do a deep dive into every single asset that they own from a balance sheet perspective, from a leasing perspective, capital expenditure, deferred maintenance, we'll go into the financials. And it it can be anywhere from one to two hours depending on how many positions they have. And um, I mean, it's an exercise obviously that we do internally but it's something where, you know, I'd say we're probably doing two of those a week. And again, I think it's really important, even though I agree with all the statements you made, if you're talking to investors that have invested in venture capital or leveraged buyout private equity or anything that has kind of asset heavy, non-stock market correlated investments, they're they're feeling really bad right now. Because if you look at, in our world, we look at cap rate, right? But multiples on EBITDA, multiples on revenue, whatever the kind of terminology data point you want to use, when rates go up this high this quickly, those asset values fall tremendously. And if you have to mark them to market, your portfolio is probably down somewhere 40 to 60 plus percent year over year.
0: Yeah, I, I was listening to the All In podcast yesterday, and they were talking about how Stripe is, is you know, they're if they go public, they're going to really set the the new starting point for valuation of companies because they are run so well as a private company, and everybody knows how well they are run, that, you know, they're going to set the new benchmark for what these companies are going to be actually valued at. And it's uh, if they go public, it's going to probably devalue a lot of other companies because everybody's going to look at them and say, nope, well, if Stripe is valued at this, there's no way you're valued at X, right? Because they're very well run and they're in you know pretty strong health right now.
1: Yeah, and I don't want to hog all the airtime. I've got to leave at 2.30, so I want to make sure I kind of share. But Dave and I were at a YPO event the other week in Nashville. It was a lot of other groups that looked similar to us, and it was depressing. The The sentiment in the room was really <laughs> ne- It was really negative. It was really tough. And if you just look at, to your point, Tyler, like volume depending on your product type is down 70% year over year in terms of transaction volume. So you've got to realize that the stuff that is trading is probably not trading at a very competitive price. So if you're in the market trying to buy or sell something and everyone else around you is saying, well, yeah, but you're looking at a 70% discount, seven zero percent discount then you're upside down on your position, even though it's illiquid, right? And that's kind of the hard thing to address right now. And I'm a little bit more pessimistic than most folks because I do think the banks are trying to hold off having to mark to market as much as they can. So they're blending and extending. But at some point when when they realize those losses, the whole market pricing is going to reset. And any market participant over the last three to five years, it's a totally different pricing world. Right, And so what you were saying about Stripe going out, it's what we're all going to unfortunately feel the pain of. And you mentioned CMBS. Well, last month, 89% of all the CMBS maturing debt for office was impaired. In other words, the, the borrower could not make their payment. And so if people just look at that as a data point and using that as a pricing reset, there's just huge gulf in pricing expectation between buyers and sellers right now. And so I think even though the global macro trends are very positive, I agree with you.
0: I think for real estate, it's going to be a tough
1: two to three years to work through all this.
0: Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. I, uh, I mean, CMBS is expected to at least double in its delinquency over the next couple of months, which makes sense. Uh, glad that you and Dave got to, to meet each other uh, here in Nashville. Uh, that's pretty cool, but I, you know, David Green, I interviewed him at the Bigger Pockets conference a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you know what? I, I think real estate is going to be the the cleanest shirt in the dirty laundry, and I thought that was a really good way of looking at it. Like, yeah, nothing's unscathed right now, but real estate might be the most okay of all of the investment vehicles that you could be looking in. Uh, that doesn't mean it's great you know it's kind of like the uli emerging trends just came out nashville's number one but i was joking with some friends who are like yeah it means that nashville's the least worst off <laughs> out of every market out there uh but dave i want to kick it over to you man what are you feeling out there in the market right now
2: just the vo- just the volume you know Brian had mentioning this there's not much out there you know in, in the stuff that is out there to buy you're kind of like hey maybe I just wait because it's probably gonna be cheaper in a little bit which isn't helpful that's not a helpful uh, mindset for the overall like market as a whole. But like right, but right now it's like kind of wait, and you can probably get a better deal if you just wait a little bit. But the if you're like, hey, I've got to sell because I've got issues on this deal. That the volume is just not there, so you're gonna you're gonna be hard pressed to really force a sale right now. You'll probably just hold it and do what you can. So that just delays. You know, I I think in the last time we we saw that where people like holding too long and operating poorly, it it actually degrades value even more over time when you have a deal where you got to salvage parts and you, you don't have a budget to go buy anything. It's literally just like slowly dying even more and more on that deal. So it's hard.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're not, you're not reinvesting capital into the property and it just slowly goes downhill year after year. I mean you know our brokerage which i think is you know brokerage is the front lines of commercial real estate right so if you're monitoring brokerage you can see pretty well what's probably going on in the world we're down 50 percent year over year and nothing has changed like in terms of the amount of prospecting we're doing the amount of conversations we're having everything is the same as we were on track for last year now last year was a little bit of a different case right i mean we were up significantly last year So all in all, not a bad spot to be, but I mean, if 50%, you know, down on the brokerage side is any indicator of how many transactions are taking place in the overall marketplace,
3: it's a lot. Logan, what are you feeling out there, man? You know, last time I checked, you could not find a Z estimate for my shopping centers or for my 100 plus unit multifamily deals. So um, that is an interesting perspective to take here. So as long as you have, no issue of a a, a coming capital event right you don't need to refinance you don't need to sell you're not in distress right which is i think one of the things that brian is speaking to is uh many of the deals that were done previous two to three years um are not in that uh, boat right they're in a boat where they have to do something right now and when you are forced to make a decision because of your debt structure you are now uh, beholden to the market. And if you're in that position, you're in a bad spot. Here's what I will say. We took, uh, we have a commercial real estate brokerage as well. We are actually not down this year. Um, uh, it may just, uh, you know, point to how bad of a year we had last year, but, um, I would like, <laughs> that, uh, you know, we're we're actually doing okay. But this year alone, I mean, this quarter alone, sorry, We've had 5.6 million dollars of real estate go under contract, and we're typically a 50 to 75 million dollar a year brokerage, so not huge. But you know, we also have a lot of uh, you know deals that aren't marketed, so uh, fees are a little bit higher on a lot of those transactions. So it's like I'm doing the double amount of of uh, gross you know commission volume. But long story short, when am I seeing trade and not trade? Okay, well. Uh, We have brought a lot of deals to market personally in our own portfolio this year, as well as for clients and represented over 10 buyers this year. What's trading is deals that are in great locations with low crime, newer vintage, 2000s and newer, uh, with great schools around them that are highly occupied and don't necessarily need a huge uh, value add component uh, from a cosmetic standpoint. People are still okay, I think, going into an operational type of uh, value add. But if you are uh, looking on the brokerage side, and this is what I'm seeing on our disposition side, uh, which we will sell about 350 uh, and 50 multifamily units this year. And I'll walk through a couple of those transactions as well. But on the brokerage side, the stuff that is in tougher areas, that is heavier value add, I think people have less faith finding a contractor that's not going to blow the budget out of the water. Why? Well, because rates are higher. Uh, insurance is higher. Uh, paint is higher. HVAC costs went up 2,000%. All of these things are, are putting even more pressure on these value-add plans. I'm talking about the smaller, multi investor here, but that's what I'm feeling on the brokerage side. If something is 100% occupied and it's you know close to being positively leveraged, we're still having a lot of success transacting those real estate deals. Uh, but again location has to be really really you know really good um, on that front and you need to have you know some sort of um you know occupation or uh you know cosmetic that's you know a vintage that is in a decent 2000s or newer the older stuff is having a hard time trading um i also think that's because lenders and insurance companies are being harder on those properties as well uh potentially because what they're they're seeing in their own portfolios from what they're holding right So. On the, on the disposition side, though, you know, we have a, a project in Des Moines, Iowa, that was built in 2014, and uh, when we acquired it, we had the, the optionality to take a floating rate um, mortgage on that deal uh, for, you know, it was close to 3.2%, but instead, we locked it at 3.67% for 10 years, and we went to market with that deal uh, less than a month or probably about 45 days ago, had 25 offers and went under contract for uh, above asking price. So we, we purchased this 123 unit project about 13 and a half million dollars. And we're under contract to sell at 16 and a half million dollars with a uh, DST company that put up $500,000 uh, hard uh, day one uh, with another $300,000 to go after the due diligence period. Why? Assumable loan. 2014 vintage in a growing market. We've also put on the market 1960s product in a non-favorable submarket in Kansas City and have struggled substantially to even get an offer to even get one offer and this is not priced at the highest mark you know price of, of Independence Missouri. And so um, we are able to transact on one of those deals out of, uh, out of a portfolio of 426. Again, why? Well, it's in a better location and the the debt is assumable at a nice leverage point. And, um, you know, the vintage is in 1975. So I think that we have to be very careful. Uh, investors need to be very careful about value add multifamily deals that are vintage between 60s and 70s as they are falling out of favor uh, substantially from not just equity investors, they might still be on the on, you know, in the game with those, but maybe from a lender standpoint, an insurance standpoint, and then let's just think about how old these properties really are. I mean, if you're talking in the 70s, we're we're 55 years old now and things start to break. I mean, I turned 34 years ago and my my body started to break down, right? So, you know, I, I can just tell you that the properties are the same way and to to get them back to a, the, the challenge, and I'll stop after this, but the challenge is you're having to put in the dollars now for not a renovation plan to uh, granite and better cabinets and better flooring. It's putting in the renovation dollars just to get the property operational for the residents that are living there from a mechanical, electrical and plumbing standpoint. That stuff is going out and it's not going out all at once, but building by building, you know, you're, you've know, you got these issues that are causing budgets to be blown up and that, that costs to do that from a labor and a material standpoint is through the roof. Uh, in a lot of those components. If you can even find a company to come do it uh, in a lot of markets. And so I think that um, from what I'm seeing, if you have a good property with assumable debt in a nice market that's a good vintage, you're probably still in shape But why, you know, the question would become, why wouldn't you hold that, right? Well, you always need to look at your marginal rate of return versus what somebody's willing to pay now. And you may go get that DST company that absolutely needs to deploy by the end of the year because, you know, their structure is whatever. That is requiring them to do that. But we have failed on multiple listings of our own portfolio this year, which didn't meet those criteria. So if somebody had to go get a new loan, you know, insurance. I mean, I'm I'm seeing costs go from 450 a unit to 750 all the way up to a thousand dollars a unit on the multifamily side. That's just blowing budgets out of the water. And I, you know, Brian could probably speak to the insurance market better than I can, but I'll tell you this. I mean, mo- the the top three insurers are dropping out of doing even insurance in this, and so that is something that I'm not seeing a lot of people speak about. But I tell you what, I mean that's a huge issue, especially if you're on a coastal market where you might have, you know, serious weather uh, issues going on. I mean, insurance is really causing a lot of issues for for getting deals done. So it's not just interest rate where people are saying, oh man, I can't make deals work because of interest rate. It's not just that. I mean, it's the operational costs to do these deals um that are we're seeing you know being a lot of a lot of challenges on it as well well
0: let's let's dive into the yeah. insurance piece a little bit more and i'll kind of open that up to whoever wants to talk about it but i agree i mean I, I don't see too many people talking about what's going on in the insurance world right now and it's it's been wild to watch over the last 12 months you know it's i think that part of it has to do with we're having more billion dollar uh damaged storms than we've ever had before. And the way that the insurance market works is as soon as they take a loss somewhere, they're going to raise rates across the board to start paying for that. So, you know, even if it's, uh, sure, the coastal markets are going to be affected more so than inland, but inland is going to have to pay for that as well. I mean, at what point does the government have to step in and start doing reinsurance? Or what, what, like, where do we go from here with insurance (laughs) rates where they are?
2: Yeah, it's like, how expensive can the government do it for? And even that big <laughs> hurricane that was just down in Mexico you know that's going to affect the reinsurance pool so everyone's insurance is going to be more expensive because all insurance is normally going into some reinsurance pool you know from a carrier and that just makes it more and more expensive the other the other part that we see a lot of is is the legal like tort component of it where a slip and fall maybe 10 years ago $15,000 or a $30,000 settlement, and now you're seeing millions of dollars being paid out in, in those kind of uh, incidents, whether whether they're, I'm not saying they're right or wrong or, or good or bad, you know, you don't want to see anyone get hurt, but the the cost of that to an insurance company that's now battling those costs uh, all over the place is substantial. And that's why, yeah, $700 a unit for insurance, that doesn't, you know, now that's, that's a like, pencil. yeah. It's crazy because it was, you know, even just five years ago, it was in the $200 range. So you're seeing some significant price increases across the board on that front, which I think is that's definitely going to take some deals out. The other part, we can't, a lot of our properties too, like you can't get the full insurance coverage you used to be able to get because the insurance providers are unwilling to provide that level of either loss on rent or that level of coverage for different acts you know every insurance contract has like a million different carve outs for how it's negotiated and those limits are all coming down basically meaning the property owner has got to self-insure above certain levels which is you know it is what it is but that's that's just pushing put more downward pressure on uh the value of stuff and and how much reserves you got to have
0: well, it puts investors in a really tough spot, right? Because the the bigger guys will be able to self-insure, right? I mean, at a certain point of policies that you're paying every year, it makes sense for you to just self-insure and take yourself out of the the private insurance pool. But that means that a lot of your smaller investors won't be able to make deals pencil anymore. And it's just another way to push them out of the market. I mean- it's it's just it's weird to think of how that's going to get solved. I don't know that it is, and you start thinking about seven hundred dollars a unit in insurance. I mean, that's that's your net on a unit, uh, if not more than your net on a unit in a single month, right? So you're you're going to go ahead and mark off one month out of the year of, of no more profit. Uh, it's it's tough to make all those numbers work fortunately in the in the triple net commercial real estate space we get to pass it on to the tenants but then that's still i mean you know which is great right yeah. like we always talk about hey it's nice and triple net but then tenants are still looking at their all-in costs so does base rent move yeah. Brian looks and like you were about to think, say something
1: and you're you're going to start getting pushed back from your tenants there and i can give you kind of a we have a deal in fort lauderdale we were unable to get insurance on it we couldn't get a bid and so we had to go to the, and that obviously bridges a covenant. So we had to go to the lender, and say, hey, like this is the situation. We can't get a bid on this asset, and so the lender had to go get forced coverage on it, which I do not even know. I didn't even know that that was possible, right? But they mm-hmm. have some kind of warehouse line that they can draw down on, to force place coverage on the asset. You're going to see more and more of this. And yeah, I mean, I think it's just going to, it's going to ultimately hit returns to the LP side because it's part of your NOI, right? And underwriting is going to get harder. Uh, I think a comment I would make on this, and then I want to make a comment that I heard from both you and Logan. That's important for people to understand. I do think the federal government's going to step in and they're going to step in for the commercial real estate industry as a whole. You're starting to see the Biden administration pretend to do this from social reasons like tax incentives to get conversion happening to residential because of immigrant issues, etc. I think that's a red herring like smokescreen to just help save the real estate industry, because I think we are going to have to have some type of bailout facility at some point come in. Um, They're going to have to do the same thing on the insurance side for sure in the coastal markets like the way they do it residentially it has to be applied commercially. And another comment I'll make is this is where you're going to see sponsors pivot to different revenue lines and or cut yeah. their overhead. Because one of the dynamics that's happening that I don't think investors fully appreciate is it's frustrating when assets don't make distributions for everybody, obviously. But when, what ends up happening is when you don't make distributions typically it means there's no management fees being accrued for asset management to the sponsor, which means your overhead gets tighter, which means people have to be let go, or you have to go find a different way to make up that revenue elsewhere from a different source. So when you see distributions being paused or capital calls being made, that means that that overhead no longer will apply to the sponsor, the GP, which hurts their operating business. And on top of that, I think another issue that people don't fully appreciate is because the lenders aren't taking the keys back like they used to back in 08, they're blending and extending because they don't want it to mark to market. It means that you have to maintain the asset management of those assets that aren't performing. So sponsors are getting double hit. They're not getting asset management fees because they're not making distributions on the properties, and they're having to hold on to assets that aren't performing. So a lot of these
0: operating businesses no longer make sense from a capital structure perspective. Yeah, and once you start marking that down, it's it's just a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a tailspin that you can't really pull yourself out of because you don't have the people anymore to even help turn it around. And you know, I saw there, there's a uh, an office building in San Francisco that's being auctioned off, I think it's, you know, I think that they think it's going to go for between, you know, 30 and $40 million, but it's got $58 million in debt on it. So, you know, Bank of America is going to take a huge loss on their books. That investor is going to take a huge loss. I mean, it's not going to be uh, just that one building is going to have a lot of implications for, what could be happening in the market i've got a very uh potentially controversial question but i do think that it's something that we should we should jump on and talk about because it's very relevant for 2024. dw is saying what are your guys outlook if a democrat stays in office versus a republican winning the white house in 2024 when it comes to commercial real estate uh we don't have to take this in a completely political direction um but you know logan i'm going to kind of hand that over to you first. What are your thoughts on a Democrat versus Republican in office in 24 and what that means for the real estate market?
3: Yeah, so I would point this individual back to Dr. Peter Linneman and his research because he does track this uh, on an ongoing basis uh, for the last 20 to 25 years. And I don't think there is a substantial, uh, from a national standpoint, I don't think there's just a substantial difference between a Republican and Democrat. However, when thinking about it for uh, my own local uh, municipalities there is a big difference and i think that's where you need to really understand so i mean what what would the what would a democrat or republican really impact well i mean i guess it's policy um, but you've got job growth you've got job losses uh, you've got real estate taxes uh, you've got things like the 1031 exchange and opportunity zones but that's on more of a national uh, macro standpoint if i look from a micro standpoint i think this is what is going to be a larger impact, right? So that might be where people are actually moving to, and that driving multifamily development, that driving office needs, retail needs, industrial needs, things like that. Um, you know, I'm a big, uh, you know, I'm a big follower of some individuals that have been spending a lot of time out in Los Angeles and what's going on in Los Angeles and San Francisco and some of the policy that has been implemented, uh, implemented there. Uh, prime example is you can drive up and down one of the most popular boulevards on your way into Hollywood, California. And um, outside of multimillion dollar houses, there are RVs just parked on the side of the road. And unfortunately, um, yes, you can park a a vehicle there, but you're not supposed to camp out there. Uh, But for the law enforcement to actually get them to uh, leave that space, you have to actually evict them from that space. So you have to serve them papers and there's an actual process for that rv owner to move their rv out in front of somebody's house right um and and not only that if they don't if they don't have the ability to uh, take their belongings with them the los angeles police department is required to take their belongings and put them in a self-storage facility so it's policy like that that i think you need to to be aware of and think through when you're you're thinking about real estate investing is probably more local because i haven't been able to really find a a definitive answer that if a Republican or a Democrat is in office, uh, does real estate do better or worse? I actually think you know real estate is on its own cycle. Um, You know we have a we have a financial cycle, we have an economic cycle, uh, we have a credit cycle. I think those are the things that you probably should be looking at uh, more than if is a Democrat or Republican in office. But uh, local municipality and policy where you live and where you're investing absolutely does have an impact because That is what's going to impact what you can and cannot do. Another prime example is short-term rental space. Hot topic for a lot of of real estate investors, right? Um, Well, I know Kansas City just recently passed a law that said, okay, no more short-term rentals. And if you you actually do have a short-term rental, you need to go get it registered with the city. And you may or may not get your permit, so then you cannot have a short-term rental. And there are neighborhoods in Kansas City where you cannot operate a short-term rental. Uh, if you are in a commercial building, however, and it's mixed use, maybe retail on the main level and you have short-term rentals on the top level, as long as you, you cannot be denied a permit, but you still have to go get a permit, right? And so that's revenue for the city, yes, but it's also limiting uh, real estate investors' um, you know opportunities if they want to go into certain neighborhoods in the city. So that'd be my my answer. But I would look up Dr. Peter Linneman, and I do think that he actually spoke about this on Willie Walker's last podcast that they, that they had on. Uh, just recently, and uh, his data and research would be very um, informative, I think, on this on this point.
0: Yeah, I think the average person completely underestimates how much a local politician has control over their local real estate market, and and overestimates what the White House typically does. Yeah. And and the sad thing is, you know, Nashville just we just voted on our mayor, and I think that we had less than a twenty percent voter turnout. Or less than 25%. I mean, it was just some crazy low number where you look at that and you're like, I mean, I, you know, I know, obviously you don't want to ever have to force anybody to vote, but how do we lower the barriers of entry so that more people are actually getting their voice heard? Because, you know, it's it's the same in national elections. I mean, when you have 20% of the people that are determining who the president is it, or who your local politicians are, I mean, that's that's when you start running into problems. Brian had to jump, so he he got to uh, Bows out on the controversial question, but Dave, what are your thoughts?
2: <laughs> I mean, getting people to vote is is definitely important. But yeah, I think I'm a local investor too. You know, I don't I don't have any national platform investments. So when I look at the federal level politics and how they're going to impact real estate, just looking for consistency in policy decision on how stuff is made. Whether whatever the policy is, if it's consistent for a good amount of time that's easier environment to operate in and then it's one thing this country has benefited from as a very stable political system. I know internally we see a lot of ups and downs, but if you think holistically, we've had a pretty, pretty stable uh, world we operate in here, which is which is very helpful and conducive for business. But locally, it's to me, it's it's all in the mayor's hand, the planning office of what zoning they're going to approve and what they want to see happen in certain areas. that can have massive swings in the value of certain pieces of real estate, even how you operate down to the sheriff's office. You know, the sheriff's office for the past four years has had a lot of control over how evictions are gonna be handled and what's gonna be done there. So, you know, that stuff's super important on a local level. And, uh, you know, the governor has a lot of input, you know, statewide for whatever state you're invested in. But for me in Georgia, you know, the governor of Montana doesn't do much for me. Right. (laughs) I'm just following what the local, you know, governors and mayors are doing in the cities that I operate in uh, and making sure I know what's going on. So, yeah,
0: makes a big difference. It looks like DW jumped in and said, uh, let me clarify, meant the context of possibly working with the fed to curb inflation and policies that better protect business owners. That's yeah, that's a little bit different.
3: Well, the federal reserve is supposed to be a bipartisan uh, office that is, um, not directed by the Republicans or the Democrats. Now, uh, we have seen in recent years um, the uh, you know the president put a lot of pressure on the Federal Reserve. But um, at the end of the day, I, I think that um, Jerome Powell uh, is somebody that you should understand and um, research. Uh, he's actually a corporate guy. You know, he came, he came from big business, and he thinks about the world. I think from a business standpoint, in a lot of ways. Um, but one book that I would highly recommend. I know I'm always giving book recommendations, but um, is Paul Volcker's uh, memoir because uh, he gets uh, compared to Paul Volcker a lot in in his policy and the way that he is thinking about things. And so Paul uh, is a mentor to a lot of individuals. Ray Dalio being one of them, and so I would highly recommend reading uh, that book, I forget the book's name, but just search Paul Volcker and you'll be able to find his memoir in that regard. So I think that the president and the commander in chief can put pressure on the Federal Reserve, but um, Jerome Powell has shown resiliency in that regard. And so I think that, um, you know, from that standpoint, I'm not sure how much impact that would or would not have. Uh, so to speak, if you know you read the creature, the creature from Jekyll Island, and there's a lot of people in that camp of saying we don't need a Federal Reserve and it shouldn't, we should not have that. Um, then that's a whole different landscape, right? But those are two books: the creature from Jekyll Island and uh, Paul Volcker's memoir that uh, really helped me understand what's going on there in in the White House. And there are great individuals like Ed Yardini, Um, who does the Fed Watch and things like that will summarize those things for you so you don't have to read all those minutes Uh, to the point of how many times uh, Jerome Powell said recession or uh, tightening or some other words that will be indicative on the the policy going forward. So I think that that's um, something to keep in mind and and think about. But always just remember on that front that, you know, real estate is is a very uh, simple business in a lot of ways. Um, you know purchase price is going to always be permanent Financing is, is always going to be temporary and so put yourself in a position to do a deal that you trust that the real estate the location is in a good spot for the long haul and You will have options going for but do not put yourself in a position where you have to accomplish three things like Financing, a rent bump, and a, and a cosmetic upgrade to the property—all three of them have to go perfect for you to even break even. That's a deal you just don't do. So, highly recommend putting in decision criteria that say, "Okay, um, if I can implement one of these things, that's that'd be a win. But if I can't do any of them, would I still buy this deal or still invest in this opportunity?" That's how we need to be thinking about this. Now, the uh, mental model of the greater fool's theory of buying something sitting on it and waiting for it to appreciate that game is over uh, For the time being that the high, the, the top requirement for that is cheap money And we do not have that relatively speaking to our last three to five years over time the last 15 or 20 years We're pretty normal where we're at on our interest rates. So, I mean, that's something to keep in mind as well so Brian's not here anymore, but he did hit the, the nail on the head that when he said there will be a price reckoning, and there will be a uh, repricing event. I mean, we we can't have multifamily properties, you know, continuing to be two hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars a unit to build, and that that would include land as well. At some point, it just doesn't make sense to buy something uh, versus re, you know versus building something. You know, the replacement cost matters in this business, and so there will be a point where that that shifts back. But just the the thing that I've been telling investors and and keeping true to is that purchase price is permanent. Financing is temporary. Don't put yourself in a position where you have to do one of those things to make the deal work and you're probably going to be okay. Now, today's point, you might do a whole lot less for the time being, but guess what? You'll be on the field when the time is right to actually make your next move. And I think that's extremely important to keep in mind right now.
0: Yeah, that's funny. I've been saying something very similar. You can refinance a bad interest rate. You can't refinance a bad purchase price. So, right. you know, something to keep in mind, right? I mean, that's especially in times like these, like interest rates are probably going to come down. Make sure the deal works today, right? But go for a better purchase price and deal with the interest rate if you can cash flow it or if you can, you know, bear through it and refinance that as soon as you can. Dave, okay. Dave, what are your thoughts on on red versus blue when it comes to working with the Fed and and policies?
2: yeah i mean the, the the federal component i think they're going to get involved as brian was mentioning on the i see it from the banking side whereas the large banks that have so much uh loans that are probably undervalued like how is that going to be kind of not to say bailed out but like what are they going to do there because a lot of the banks you know if you reprice all that debt then they're going to not be hitting you know their covenants that they have to have to for banking regulation, but I don't think either Democrat or Republican side is, is too anxious to say, Hey, we're going to be sending big banks more money. So I, I, I see more like if something like that happens, the policies that are going to be packaged in with that bill from the Republican or Democrat side are really kind of going to be where the actions at. So if, if it's a Democrat that's in, in office we'll probably have more social programs that get put into anything that, that happens to fix either the debt or the insurance side of the game. And, uh, you know, if it's on the Republican side, there'll probably be less of that uh, that's going to go into it. That's really where I see kind of the, the action happening. But ultimately, I don't see those having a direct uh, national play on the, on the real estate space. So I still think it's just very hyper-local and, and mayor-based.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I don't see it being a huge swing either way. I mean, it, it is what it is, right? And, you know, there's there's only a few directions that you can really take. I mean, the time-tested proven method is curb inflation by raising interest rates. Leave them there until inflation starts coming down, then drop interest rates. Right? I mean, it's it's uh, basically economics 101. Unfortunately, we've just got to deal with it right now. Yeah. You know. I
2: think the Fed too, I mean, they're going to they they don't want to come out and be like, "Hey, either any president or any political person has direct influence over me as like as Powell or anyone in the fed. So, I mean, I think they're going to push push back pretty hard against saying that they're being influenced and, and they're going to make, you know, whether we agree with those decisions or not, they're going to make the decisions that they believe uh, are best. And I think you know, anyone can be quick to either agree or disagree with, with the actions the fed has, but, um, yeah, they're gonna I don't I think they're gonna try and not be swayed. They're, or at least they're gonna try and show that they aren't being swayed as much as possible.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that because it's not gonna be a good look if they are. Let's uh let's get into twenty twenty four. Let's talk about our strategy, what we're looking at. I know obviously we've we've spent forty one minutes talking about how bad the market is. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're we're closing up shop and everybody's running home because you know 2024 is it. It will be a good year for real estate investors if you make it one. Uh, it's going to be a tough year for real estate as a whole, but you know I, I like opportunities like this, and and I'm sure you guys are the same. I mean, you look at this a price correction. To me, is like hell yeah, everything's going on sale. Finally, we're going to be able to make things work again. You know, with Logan talking about you know $275,000 cost to build apartments. I mean, it's about the same in Nashville. I think the average in Nashville is like. Two hundred and eighty thousand dollars, so it's right on that mark. And you, I mean, you start thinking about that from a condo perspective. You couldn't even build condos and sell them to really make any money at that cost, right? So, you know, what's uh, Dave? We'll start off with you. I mean, what's your strategy going into twenty four? What are you looking at? You know, uh, what what are your thoughts on loan to values and debt, and what kind of deals? What kind of discount do you have to get in order to make a deal attractive to you going into the new year?
2: I. I would say right now I'm I'm trying to work on making sure I can be offensive as possible in twenty twenty four. And what I mean by that is is ensuring that I don't have like big defense situations I've got to handle in the next like eight to nine months. Right. I wanna have that stuff in, in position that, you know, don't have any big lease renewals or or make sure you don't have any note renewals. I've gotten rid of all of that stuff and got it out past twenty twenty. For into 2025 or 2026 so I think going into 2024 there's gonna be a lot of people playing defense so the opportunity to play offense you're gonna be competing against fewer people if you can find something in your area that is attractive for you to buy and operate and in my space I'm I'm looking at a lot of uh, commercial office right now and I know it's a negative area overall, but we're taking some office buildings, some, not all of them, by no means all of them, very few of them, but they can be turned into other uses fairly quickly. I'm focusing on those opportunities and trying to do as much of that as I can. Debt's not going to be great. It's going to be in the seven, eight, 9% range. It's going to be 50% loan to value if you can, if you can get it, but that's what it is. So we're making deals pencil that fit with you know with that in mind we're not going in assuming hey in june rates are going to be back to 0%. I don't I don't think so. So you got lower lower LTVs and you got higher interest rates and you got to make a deal pencil around what that is.
0: Yeah, it sounds to me like just resetting your expectations, right? Figure out what that cash flow number is that makes sense for you and your investors and just move the bars wherever they need to go. This is what we can offer. On this property now, because that's the you know we have to get X return. Logan, what are you doing? Yep.
3: Well, some highlights and some bright spots. So um, I think about Tina a lot. Sometimes I dream about Tina, and Tina. Right, here we being, go. There is no alternative, right? And so you hear that a lot, of, a lot of times across different investment asset classes. But Tina has been in my mind a lot. do tell my wife. Um, just kidding, maybe I love you. But at the end of the day, the 60-40 portfolio lost 17% last year. So Tiger 21 is a group that I highly recommend everybody checking out their portfolio allocation reports on. It is uh, the top 1% of investors. It's what they're allocating to, and it's really informative. And uh, they're pouring money into cash. Even you see Ray Dalio say that cash is not trash anymore uh, for a reason. Howard Marks is is the same way. They are getting ready to buy at a discount. You know, and I think that that is something to keep in mind. And I saw that uh, play out here recently when we launched our first project of the year to our investor base. And in a week, we were eight hundred thousand dollars oversubscribed for a retail shopping center. I think it's because there is no alternative. And folks may feel comfortable putting money into treasuries to a certain extent, but real estate is tangible. They're still value in cash flow and having a tangible asset that's something we have to remember also taxes are not going down taxes are going up across um you know many states if not all um and so i think people are seeing okay well how can i look at this from not just a cash flow standpoint but also a tax diversification play as well so you know i think that's helping um in in a lot of ways when you're talking to investors now there's not just a price reckoning between buyers and sellers coming, there's a price reckoning between GPs and LPs coming. And I mean that in the sense that, you know, I could pull up any offering memorandum, mine included over the past three years and see an 8% preferred return, 16 to 18% IRR. That is what has been, you know, standard across a lot of different asset classes. And so I think that's gonna come down. And so we will start to see people Really start to look like, uh, or look at the cash flow from these properties, and try to understand uh, IRR partitioning, which just simply means is the return based off of an exit, or is a return based off of the cash flow of the property? And if you can generate cash flow during the hold of the property, you're going to be in a good spot. And so I think that's one thing that investors are probably going to be asking for and/or evaluating uh, more uh, in depth here in 2024. Uh, which also impacts the way that we think about doing deals and what we're trying to acquire. The other part being that uh, capital markets are still going to be very spooky, in my in my opinion, and mm-hmm. spooky in the sense that even for an 85% well-located shopping center that had good tenants in it um, was hard to find a loan for and was 60 days down the road with one lender and uh, had all the commitments and everything and, you know, went to, one guy who was on vacation and he came back and said, Nope, you're not getting my vote. And so we were back to the drawing board to get uh, a lender for this project. So, you know, I think that that's important to, um, you know, keep in mind as well that capital markets are going to be spooky and that's something that uh, impacts deals heavily. So, you know, that presents opportunities, right? So if you can, force it, for example, uh, go raise uh, all cash and still find an unlevered IRR. Um, And a cap rate in this scenario would be your return right because you're not using any debt on a project so your cap rates your return and so you can still buy at a nine percent you know cap rate then you should be getting a nine percent return and when capital markets do return you can put five percent debt on there and do a cash out refinance at that point can you tell that story to investors and get them excited enough to move forward in real estate if you can One, you will be able to move faster and get more deals probably because you're not dependent on financing. I think that, um, you know, 50 to 60% of the transactions we've done on the brokerage side this year have been cash and a lot of cash, you know, two, three, $4 million deals that were cash. And so I think that's uh, an opportunity and a component to be thinking through. Um, the other part, the state of home ownership, this is widely interesting to me. I'm not in residential real estate, but, um, Watching these prices is incredible. Check this out. A home buyer needs an income of nearly $115,000 to afford the median price United States home in August. That's up $99,000 from a year earlier. I know people got raises, but I don't think they got $100,000 raises. Uh and that's 54% above the median household income in the United States. What is that present Well, that's a that's definitely an opportunity in that space. Are you doing build to rent? Are you um, creating some sort of housing for individuals that might be very lucrative. Are you taking an office building and making it into condos again? We haven't seen that in a lot of time, in a long time. But I'll tell you what, there was a boom of condos downtown in Kansas City. I think in the early '90s and 2000s, and now you can't find a condo because people are buying them up. So I think there's in all these things there's opportunities um, to uh, exploit, and you have to be willing to pivot as a company to see, okay, well, this is what the markets, you know, presenting to me, Let, let's see what I can actually do. You know, so I think deal volume will be still down. But let's also so those are some bright spots. Um, I'm not going to throw shade on that. But I will because I that's just the way that I think um, we are now in, you know, the the, the global climates now in, in two geopolitical hot wars, we have uh, a fiscal um, deficit that is skyrocketing, we are in debt. Uh, Remarkably, as a country, Uh, we couldn't pick a speaker of the house uh, for three weeks. Um, You know, even in the same party, couldn't pick somebody to lead that. Uh, We have big spending bills coming for likely Ukraine and Israel. We have so that's more. Uh, We have issues at people's borders, and this is not me. I I live inland, but I do watch a lot of things that are going on at the borders. Um, So we have that, and we have an election coming up. I mean, all of those things going into 2024 do not make it an easy investing climate. I don't mean from a GP standpoint to find uh, a real estate deal because they will be out there and we will buy them. And so will you too, guys, because you're in the know and working on it and not letting a lot of this stuff impact you. But I, I will tell you that raising capital from private investors could be a tricky situation in 2024 just because of the perceived risk of all those things that i just mentioned making people sit on their hands more and so what do i think the opportunity is is likely all those funds that were being raised and folks that uh, have been in the business for some time and have relationships with their investors and they've probably been through a cycle you know up and down and maybe come back up are the ones that are going to be comfortable investing throughout this but i mean this is the time and, and i said this during 2020 as well, when we purchased most of our multifamily. But, you know, when everybody's being fearful, you need to be greedy. And when everybody's being greedy, you need to be fearful. Well, we're walking into that space right now, and or we're probably in it right now. Uh, The other piece that I will just mention is that if you track Phil Anderson's 18.6 year cycle, um, he's predicting in 2025, and it's never perfect. So it's either two years before or two years after. That's just an average. So it could be next year, it could be you know, we've seen it at least in one asset class in office this year, that big price declines will happen. I mean, you're talking about a $55 million office building. Uh, that's just the debt sell for 30 or $40 million. It's happening in office. And so does it happen in multifamily? Does it happen in industrial retail? I'm not sure. Uh, in pockets, I do think that that will, will be the case. And so um, that's going to present opportunities for people who um, have a team and have operational capacity to step into those deals and have the investors that are you know obviously warmed up to that idea, and so I think that's um, you know what I'm thinking about. I also you know wonder you know heavily around um, you know what what is the uh, Wall Street Journal going to keep uh, writing about you know uh, retail, and if that just um, doesn't make developers start developing a boon of of retail shopping centers, you know, and and how does that impact the asset class that I'm kind of the most bullish on? Um, right now because one thing I'm, I'm always tracking is supply and demand and supply has been very limited the last 10 years. But if it's becoming back into favor, we know what happens with developers is they start to develop that that uh, that asset class. Now with retail specifically, it's hard to do because it takes a lot of ground to do that because you need a lot of parking and usually it's already been developed for multifamily or something that can go you know up. So there might not be as much land. Uh, available. And then construction costs and capital is also going to put a constraint on that. So I think you have some runway within that, but developers, uh, and if anybody's a developer here, I know Tyler, you are, but you know, big developers, let's just say that um, typically when the going is good, they're going to develop as much as you possibly can and then pull back. And and the physical demand of that is actually out of balance. Meaning when it's easier to do, you don't have as much physical demand. Um, But then when you deliver, you might have less physical demand than what you actually need. So that can be kind of out of balance a little bit. So I think that's going to present opportunities. And anecdotally, I'll just say that I've talked to a few developers uh, recently developing or sorry, delivering new multifamily projects that are walking away at cost just to free up their capital that are in those projects so they can get to the next deal. You know, and that's 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 tough, right? I mean, you worked on something for three, four or five years and you're walking away from it at cost because you can't get a loan on it. Um, because that's just where capital markets are. That's one of those things that I would say that, you know, if it is indicative of making the deal pencil, meaning I've got to go get a 4% loan for this to work, you should be thinking about that heavily on if you should do that deal. Nobody could have predicted we'd be in the situation that we are four years ago if you would have looked at starts on the multifamily side or anything like that. So it's just a a completely uh, fabricated, you know, capital markets issue because the physical demand is there. But I think in 24. It'll be really interesting to see Austin, Nashville, uh, you know Dallas, Fort Worth, Phoenix, Arizona, how some of these markets do when all of these units do come online. I do believe RealPage Jay Parsons, shout out to him, uh, is predicting uh, that 670,000 units be delivered next year in the United States. On average, the past 15 years, it hasn't been above 325,000. So that's more than double. So we will see how that impacts you know rents and supply and demand going forward for multifamily. And I, I talk a lot about the multifamily because that drives a lot of the stuff that we do around the multifamily, right? So that's kind of a, you know, one of those indicators that says, okay, well, if uh, density is going to grow in this area, they're going to need more retail or more industrial and office. So those are kind of things that I'm, I'm watching and uh, just tracking and trying to make sense of on a regular basis.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's really tough as a developer to time the market, you know, it's, these guys started working on these deals back in 2020 when you can get really good, really good acquisition prices. And, you know, they're going to be delivering this year and next year and you just couldn't have timed it worse. Really. Uh, I think that there's going to be, you know, kind of unpacking everything you just said. I mean, tax, tax incentives next year, I think are going to be a big reason as to why people are investing in real estate. Uh, I was on the phone with a developer earlier, uh, one of our clients that, you know, he's, he's debating, whether to sell his, his triple net investment. He just did a ground-up build to sue for some big corporate tenants. And, uh, you know, whether he should sell it, take his cash, or whether he should raise some investor capital, pay off the, the current note that he has, and just sit on it. And so we were running through that cost-benefit analysis of, okay, what does it look like for you to depreciate, you know, do a cost seg study, accelerate a depreciation on it, hold it, not pay taxes this year or next year, uh, versus the returns you could get if you had that in cash and and where could you deploy it i think you're right about investor expectations you know we we we've been raising on an eight percent preferred return with an 18 to 22 percent irR in our projects for a while and i just don't see that happening i, I think that you know six percent preferred return with you know 15 percent 16 percent maybe even a little bit lower irR is going to be the norm and it's it's totally going to be based more on cash flow because we don't know what the exit's going to be. And, uh, man, you mentioned this earlier, and I wanted to touch on it, but the the $115,000 being able to, to afford the, the median home, man, I'll never forget the first time I made six figures and thinking to myself, like, how does somebody support a family on this on this amount of money? Because it doesn't go very far. And I'd be curious to see what true inflation has actually been like over the last five to 10 years, because I don't feel like money goes nearly as far as it used to. And I don't live like a crazy outlandish life style by any means. Um, I'm, I'm actually pretty conservative in that respect, but I I feel like every time I get to a new income level, like it just resets and I'm kind of back to where I was. Um, it's uh, it's interesting out there, but Dave, I'll let you kind of close this out. Any, any final thoughts on going into 24?
2: I mean, I'd say... Th- Logan, you mentioned 670,000 apartment units coming online. They were built in the most expensive timeframe with the cheapest debt. And now maybe they're all underwater with rates being seven, 8% for debt versus three on that construction loan. So I think that's gonna one, create opportunities in 2024. That stuff's coming out of the ground, getting delivered. There's not really debt for it. And developers typically are not operators. So, like, someone's going to have to operate and run those assets and find a way to uh, fix the capital stack that's there. I, I see 2024 as having a lot of opportunities. Everyone mm-hmm. thinks, like, hey, when is there going to be a buying opportunity? And it looks like it's more geared towards 2024 and and some situations happen. You don't want to root against people, but there's going to be, you know, whether it's debt or insurance or capital mm-hmm. stack pain in 2024, it's going to be here. And that's going to be an opportunity to buy stuff, yeah. And, and if you're in a good position, you'll be able to do it. Hopefully, at a at a really nice discount. Well, gentlemen, uh, thanks for
0: joining me today. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you're watching us on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. Leave your comments in the comments below if you had any questions um, as uh, as to what we were going through. I'll be sure to get around to those. And if you're listening on the podcast, please uh, you know follow and and leave us a review. And we'll see you guys next time.